A Sunday school child can answer the question, Where was the Messiah to be born, and where in the Old Testament do we read this? The answer, He had to be born in Bethlehem, and we know this from Micah 5.2, written 800 years before Jesus. There's a great deal of buzz these days that implies that Jews have their religion, the Islamic people have their religion, and Christians have their religion. This leads to the conclusion that Moses and his commandments are for the Jews, Muhammad and the Quran are for Islam, and Jesus and the New Testament are for the Christians. But will the biblical Jesus tolerate this? This is Truth Encounter, a program committed to help you get close to the biblical Jesus. Our culture wants to push spiritual beliefs into the safe closet of our individual private worlds and private groups divorced from public and real-time history. But the New Testament places Jesus in real-time and real history. We need to discover what actually did happen in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. Let's join our study leader, Dave Wurtson, as he talks about a judge, a toy maker, and a preacher who use Christmas for their own advantage, but miss the destiny-determining truth of the baby born in Bethlehem. Judge Watkins is a powerful judge. He is a secular man. He went to one of the big law schools, the Georgetown Law School back on the East Coast, and, and he was raised kind of in a nominal Christian home, but as he began to get going in law school, this book, the Bible, that had become so much a part of his childhood was really quickly forgotten, and he remembered, like in university, how he was taught, like I've often exposed to you that sometimes secular professors will present the Bible as just being like any other book, any other classical book, and he was told that it had a lot of contradictions in it, and it was really kind of a compilation of a lot of mythological data, and so as a judge getting into the raw and objective data of the legal educational sphere, Judge Watkins just forgot about spiritual things. And so as we move towards Christmas in his practice, what it really means for him is it's a great time of the year. In fact, Judge Watkins loves it because there's a host of lawyers and all during the year as they stand before Judge Watkins in their court, they're pleading cases and their careers depend upon being effective and winning those cases. And so he finds that the wine comes in and he has lawyers flying him salmon in from Alaska and steaks from up in Omaha, Nebraska. Man, he just loves it because this is the time of the year where all the lawyers try to pad his gift list so that when it comes during the coming year, the judge will act favorably towards him. It wasn't a bribe. It's not a literal bribe. It's just using gifts to kind of get what these lawyers want from Judge Watkins. And that's what Christmas means to this secular judge. I think of Sam Ward. Sam Ward is in the toy business. He has one of these big chains across the country. And this is make it or break a time for Sam. I mean, eight months before the Christmas holidays, in fact, more than a year before this Christmas holidays, he was in big high-level meetings in New York City, and they were brainstorming on how they could really make a killing at this holiday season. 
And a guy had come up with this idea of this cuddly little space alien, and, and it, only, it was made out of plastic and a little bit of other raw material that didn't cost hardly anything to make over in China. And they've got this thing together for about a dollar. They united together with Universal Studios. They got a real creative genius to write a, a mega hit for the kids. And Sam Ward is riding high at this Christmas season because this big blockbuster movie about their cuddly little space alien is just breaking in the millions and he's got a corner on this toy. So his toy chains across the country are making an absolute killing on this cuddly space alien that's become the latest rage that all the kids need to have. So what does Christmas mean for him? For Sam it means big bucks in the pocket. It means he can charge exorbitant prices for this worthless toy and he can make unbelievable money. His company can be set for another year. That's what it means for him. Then we go down to the first church downtown. We have Reverend Hawkins. Reverend Hawkins is an incredible orator. I mean, when you walk in this congregation on Sunday morning, there are 10,000 lights all over the auditorium. Thousands upon thousands of lights. There are beautiful evergreens. In fact, they brought in 40 real live Christmas trees that they're going to plant after the Christmas season's over. I mean, this first church is immaculate. When Reverend Hawkins gets up in his long flowing robes and his beautiful gray hair and he begins to speak in that beautiful baritone voice, everybody's riveted. And he tells them about the incredible wonder of Christmas. The incredible reality that, that things are good and that this is the time of the year that reminds us that man deep in his soul is basically good. And if we can only get in touch with our warm, good feelings towards one another, that we can really generate an incredible year of reconciliation, an incredible year of peace, an incredible year of wonder. And these 10,000 lights remind us that we can become 10,000 lights as we move into our society. And Reverend Hawkins has everyone sitting on the edge of his seat. He makes about $150,000 a year, throw in $50,000 more on book royalties. And as we look over the congregation and as I analyze what he's teaching about God, God isn't any different than a warm, cuddly, bubbly Santa Claus. Christmas, for a lot of the people that you work with, is, is just a secular time. It's a time for parties. It's a time for gifts. And it's easy for us to think as you, as you go out this week, you know, here we're gathered together in church and we sing, Oh, come all ye faithful, and Oh, holy night, and we sing all these beautiful Christmas carols. And, and truly, the birth of the Savior Jesus in Bethlehem is the center of this group right here. But I want you to understand that as we, as we go out this week, for many people, for many people, Christmas time is just a time to get gifts. It's a time to make big bucks. It's a time to kind of get a little relaxation from work. And that's all that it means. And what I want to share with you is that I find in my own life it's easy as I go out among unbelieving people that are living like that or as I watch TV shows that present that or as I'm sitting down to eat with someone that's kind of approaching life from that secular perspective. There's a part of me that can feel like maybe there is this really big divide. You know, maybe there's this church thing, Midlothian Bible Church and people that believe in Jesus and maybe there's people that are outside that arena. And maybe, you know, that the, the God of the Bible and the God of Bethlehem and Jesus being born in, in Bethlehem doesn't really relate to them. Anybody ever feel like that? I think you do. I think when we go out and we, we're exposed to the secular world, it's really easy for us to think that we just got a great story. We're thankful that Jesus is in our life. 
But when we think of Judge Watkins, when we think of Reverend Hawkins, when we think of Sam Ward, these guys that are moving and going and, and they're just making tons of bucks and they're just operating the power structures of our society, it's easy for us to think, well, God doesn't really have anything to do with them. What I want to share with you the next couple of weeks is I want to share with you that is a lie. What you're rejoicing at this Christmas season has to do with everybody on planet Earth. And the way I want to do it is, is I want to go into a very Jewish portion of the scripture. For if there's ever a people in my secular culture that I'm a part of and in the culture that we're a part of today, it's my Jewish friends that don't relate to Christmas. I mean, they're celebrating Hanukkah, the festival of lights, and we have this big division, like why would they have anything to do with Christmas? That's our Gentile thing. And that's the usual viewpoint across our society. I really got into the Old Testament as a young kid, and, and then Dr. Bruce Walkie was a mentor for me, and he really challenged me to look at the Old Testament from its own perspective. If I could ask you, where is Jesus to be born? If you were living in the first century, and, and the wise men came to you and they said, where should Jesus be born? How would you all respond? You'd all respond in Bethlehem. How do you know that? How do you know that Jesus was to be born in Bethlehem? In fact, Herod the Great asked the Jewish leaders of his day, when the wise men said, we've come to Jerusalem, we want to find the one that's been born, king of the Jews, how did the wise teachers of Israel respond? They responded, it's going to be in Bethlehem. How did they know it was going to be in Bethlehem? Micah 5, 2. How many of you have ever heard of Micah 5, 2? But you know what? I would be willing to wager that if I asked you, okay, Micah 5, 2. Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though thou be least among the clans, among the tribes, against the people of Judah, out of you will come a ruler. You know that verse. But you know, if I were to ask you, what's in chapter 4? Anybody want to tell me? What's in chapter 3? What's in chapter 2? Watch in chapter 1. You're like almost all of us as believers. We can quote a verse, Micah 5, 2, but we have no idea. In fact, some of us have really very little idea. Who in the world is this Micah anyway? Second of all, we have no idea what in the world he was promising to the people. So what I'd like to do the next couple of weeks is I want to root, I want to root the prediction that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem right back in the original context. I want you to open your Bibles to Micah because never again will anybody be able to say to you when you read Micah 5.2 and pronounce Jesus would be born in Bethlehem, never again after the next couple of weeks will somebody be able to say to you, well, you don't really know what Micah the prophet was all about. So turn your Bibles to where you all have your quiet time every single day this week to one of the minor prophets, the book of Micah. And it's over there, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. Just keep on going, and you'll eventually get past the Psalms and find Micah. It's one of the 12 prophets. In fact, in the Jewish scriptures, it's in a scroll that has all the 12 minor prophets in one parchment scroll. And here's Micah. It starts out this book, the word of the Lord that came to Micah, Micah from Meresheth, during the reigns of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, the kings of Judah. The vision that he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Now for most of us, that is just about as clear as if I read it to you in Hebrew. Who in the world is it? It starts out the word of the Lord that came to Micah. Who is this Micah from Moresheth? Well, first of all, Moresheth is just a small town. So as Midlothianites, you should really relate to this guy because Micah was always known his whole life as Micah from Moresheth. So, like, Stan Bauckham is known as Stan from Midlothian. 
If Stan goes up to New York to the Big Apple where I was born and raised, he's going to be known when he goes out to lunch, they're going to say he is Stan the Midlothianite from Texas. And for big-time New Yorkers, that communicates a whole lot. This is a small-town boy. This is the guy that's from down there in Texas, okay? That's the idea. Micah relates to you. Micah was from a small town. Only the Lord called him to proclaim in the capitals of his day, specifically the city of Jerusalem. He went up. Morachef is out by the Mediterranean Sea. It's down in what we call the Shephelah, the plain region of Israel. And the Lord called Micah to go from that area up to Jerusalem. Now it tells us that it was in the reign of these kings, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Those are all Judean kings. Remember from your Sunday school days that after Solomon and his son Rehoboam came to the throne, that he did a very unwise thing and he put heavier burdens upon the Israelites. And so the kingdom divided. And you had ten of the tribes going north and setting up a kingdom in Samaria with Samaria as the capital and the whole northern area. In fact, it's the most productive, vital region of Israel even today. And Samaria in the mountains was made a beautiful, beautiful capital. In fact, to be honest with you, from a secular standpoint, the northern kingdom rooted in Samaria was the most powerful, prosperous place. In fact, a king founded a dynasty named Omri. And Omri is, a, is an Israelite king that was able to start to build powerful cities all over the north. He was able to raise a strong army that used a ton of chariots and horses. In fact, he was so powerful, he was able even to resist some of the great kingdoms like Assyria and Egypt. So that's what's going on in the north. And Micah is going to preach to Samaria and that northern kingdom. He also mentions here that he's going to preach to Jerusalem. Now, that's the capital of the southern kingdom, just so you can get your feet oriented, a little bit planted in the soil of where Micah's coming from. Micah's preaching to the southern kingdom. In fact, the three kings that he mentioned are three of the kings that ruled the southern kingdom during the time of Micah's life and his ministry. Hezekiah is a very godly king. So Micah's prophetic ministry is going to end with a very godly king who brings about a renewal, brings about a restoration in Judah. And so very possibly that could give us a little inkling that there were some of those that listened to what Micah had to say. Because Hezekiah responded and he returned to Yahweh and he believed in the Lord. And even though Micah had a very hard message to give to Hezekiah and to the southern kingdom, some of the people really took it to heart. And that would be my prayer. You as my brothers and sisters, that we would not just come Sunday morning and hear this word and then let it just slide right through our life and not have it get into the fabric of where we're living day by day. So the idea that Micah mentions that he prophesied beginning in the reign of Jotham and Ahaz and then moving right into the reign of Hezekiah shows us that there was a powerful movement of the Spirit from his prophetic ministry. I also want you to know that this was a time of great prosperity in the southern kingdom as well. In fact, it's probably the time of the greatest material prosperity. In fact, when Micah began to prophesy... It was in the period probably at the very end of a man named Jeroboam II that was ruling over the northern kingdom. He set up a long reign, an over 40-year reign. And it was a time of unprecedented prosperity and materialism. 
That's important because we're living as Americans today in a time of unprecedented material prosperity. For the most part, like our enemies have, have not really threatened us. When I, I'm almost, almost all of my life, I had to live in fear of the great bear up there in the north and Russia was going to come. And I've shared with you about being a kid in New Jersey and getting my leather jacket over my head because Khrushchev was going to send bombs to New York City. And we've all laughed as I said, you know, now that I know what I know about nuclear energy, boy, those leather jackets would have really helped us. But, you know, now we don't have that threat anymore. We are the big superpower. We are the big economic power. We are the kingdom that's ruling the world in many, many ways. Now, as God's people living in the midst of this kingdom, Micah has a message that's really, really important. And his message ultimately culminates in a great promise, a great promise of salvation that there's going to be a tremendous ruler that will be born in Bethlehem. And in order for us to understand the significance of what Micah has to say, I want you to picture a people that are living complacently. They're enjoying all kinds of material prosperity. The rich are getting richer. In fact, they're multiplying their houses. The rich have, have houses down on the seacoast, and they have houses down on the way to Egypt. They have houses in the mountains of Jerusalem. They have retreats up at Mount Hermon as they go back and forth between the different kingdoms. In other words, it's a time of great economic prosperity. So we can relate, even though this passage was written 800 years before Jesus was born in Bethlehem, I want you to see that culture doesn't change a whole lot, human nature doesn't change a whole lot, and you can identify, even though the places are different, the names are different, you can start to get in to what Micah has to say. One of the things that was taking place in both Israel and Judah during the time, there was a whole group of elites there was a whole group of powerful people that held that this old Yahweh worship that Moses had introduced in Egypt, this idea of a God that struck down the firstborn in Egypt and set up a way through the Red Sea and delivered the children of Israel and then met the Lord at Mount Sinai. This idea of a God that actually revealed his commandments at Mount Sinai. There's a whole elite during Micah's time that hold that that idea is anachronistic. It's old-fashioned. It doesn't apply anymore. And so what they're doing is they're building beautiful temples, beautiful churches all over the, both the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And what they worship in those churches are the new gods of Assyria, the gods of, of the Canaanites, the gods of Egypt. This is what all the people are doing. And to be honest with you, when you get down to the bottom line of what was behind that worship, they worshiped gold and silver. They worshiped stuff. They worshiped material things. They worshiped the pleasures that life could bring, especially sexual pleasures and, and all the joys of, of human fertility and all that's involved in that. That's what they worship. That's what was going on. Now, Micah is this country boy coming to the city of Jerusalem, this very sophisticated city, and proclaiming a message not just for Jerusalem, but for the whole northern kingdom as well. And one of the very first things that he communicates is that it's the word of the Lord, it's the word of Yahweh that has come to him. And when he uses that idea, the word of, the, of Yahweh, what I want you to feel is that he's saying, this word happened to me. He doesn't just say, I learned about it in class. He doesn't just say that the word of the Lord was something that I learned about, that someone taught me. For Micah as a prophet, it says here, the word of the Lord that came to Micah. I want you to see that. 
Because if Micah were here today, if he were teaching us from his book, the word of God had possessed him. It wasn't something that was just outside him. It was something that happened inside of his life, and it totally transformed his entire being. That's what prophetic revelation was about. When Yahweh spoke to a prophet, he didn't come kind of just as a nice teacher, a nice philosopher. When the word of the Lord came to a prophet, it happened in their life. I want to tell you something else. Some of you are going to be among friends that think like, man, what do you do at church today? Well, man, we say the book of Micah. And your friends say, you guys got to be nuts. You mean, you studied a book written 800 years before Jesus was born? Man, I think even the stuff that was written back in the first century, that's way out to lunch. Whoever would listen to stuff written 2,000 years ago, you're a Bible church. Why do you pay attention to this book? And I can understand how my unbelieving friends can feel that way, how secular people can relate that way. But I want to tell you something. The Word of God is living. It's a lie. It's not just a book that's written in ink. The Word of the Lord happens in a prophet. And if you'll open your heart to the Holy Spirit, the Word of God will happen to you. What I'm going to be teaching in the next couple weeks relates not just to you, but it relates to every single person on planet Earth. Because Micah had the word of Yahweh, the word of the covenant Lord of Israel, come and talk to him. But I want you to know something. In Micah's day, they believed that all the different nations had their different gods. Like the Assyrians had their god, the Egyptians had their gods, the Phoenicians had their gods, the Philistines had their gods, and the Israelites had their gods. One of the biggest struggles that a prophet had as Micah was ministering was almost all the people felt like, our God's not unique. He's just our tribal deity. He's the God that we worship. And if you go somewhere else, you worship other gods. I hear that same kind of talk today. It's almost like, well, Dave, it's nice. You're a pastor of a Bible church and you worship the Lord Jesus. And it's so nice that you do that. And I have a friend who worships Buddha and worships the spirits of nature and worships the mystical forces of the universe. And isn't that nice? And then I have some Islamic friends and they worship Allah. What I want you to see is that we live in a very similar day than Micah was living in. And I promise you, if you'll listen carefully to some of what's happening in your culture, you're going to hear that kind of a thought. We all have our different gods. And you can have your God, and I can have my God, and Shirley McLean can have her God. And isn't it wonderful that we have all these gods? And we can think that's a real, brand new, postmodern, progressive idea. 800 years before Christ, Micah the prophet was speaking to a culture where they all felt that there was tribal deities that ruled over all the different areas. And Micah is going to tell us something right at the very beginning of his book. In fact, his very name means who is what the Lord is. If you're going to really understand what what the incredible gift that happened in Bethlehem is all about, if I'm ever going to have it grip my life, I'm going to need to understand that there is one Lord and nobody compares to him. For Micah, the small-town prophet, as he went to the city of Jerusalem, he didn't have a chance from a human standpoint of reaching anybody's heart. He didn't have the right education. He wasn't from the right place. But the word of Yahweh had happened in his life. He had seen a vision of what Yahweh was all about. And that's why he writes. Look what he says in the book. He says, hear, O people, all of you. Verse 2. Listen, O earth, and all who are in it. 
And I want you to see as we begin, who is addressing this book? You say, well, Dave, you've just been telling us that Micah was going to speak to Samaria. He was going to speak to Jerusalem. But Micah is going to speak much broader than that. He starts out his prophetic message. Here, O peoples, all of you. Are you included in that? Yeah. Micah was addressing you by the power of the Holy Spirit 800 years before Christ. You're part of the peoples of the earth. Look what he says. He says, listen, O earth, and all who are in it. And the Hebrew phrase there, and everything that's a part of it. I want you to understand that the God of the Bible is not a God just of, of a group of tribes like, like us today as, as Texans that are Protestant, that are studying the word of God. And this is our tribal deity. I want you to understand, brothers and sisters, wherever you go in the world, wherever you go in the world, Yahweh's authority, Yahweh's power, Yahweh's sovereignty applies. And what he decrees about things and what he believes about things and what's at the center of his heart is true wherever you go. When you go across the ocean and move into Africa, you don't walk into non-Yahweh territory. Or brothers and sisters that are laboring during this weekend serving the Lord in China. When you move through the bamboo curtain, you don't just suddenly come up with, now Yahweh, Jesus, doesn't apply anymore. This isn't his place of authority. I want you to really grab a hold of it. It's a very important idea. And Satan is trying to suck the body of Christ away from this idea. The Bible declares that the Lord is the Lord of all the earth. And you can be confident of that. It means that if you've come to know him, if you're relating to him, it means that what he's putting in your heart and the burdens that he's placing in your heart and the concept of right and wrong that he's giving you from his holy word is going to be universally applicable There's no place you can go where you can escape from the authority of Yahweh. Micah is in the heart of the Jewish scriptures and it clearly declares that Yahweh is Lord over all the earth. There is not a Jewish God, an Islamic God, and a Christian God. There is only one God who is revealed to us in the sacred writings of the Old and New Testaments. If we accept this, then on our next encounter, we will discover what this one God has promised to do, and this gets us into the heart of what happened in Bethlehem. I pray that you will invite a friend to check us out at www.truthencounter.com as Dave develops from the book of Micah exactly what was promised about the birth of the Messiah. Now take some time today to read the prophet Micah in the Old Testament for yourself.